0: Hello, I'm your host, Grayson Pruelty. Welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today, a show about emerging technology and trends and mobility with leaders and innovators who make it all happen. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to be joined by Tom Walker, CEO at DroneUp. On today's episode, he'll discuss DroneUp's commercial deployments and the company's focus on safety. We hope you enjoy this episode. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you here because drones will have a positive impact on the future delivery. Drone delivery is real. It's happening today. Drone delivery is doing it. But more importantly, most importantly, Tom, thank you for your service at what you serve in the United States Navy.
1: Oh, thank you very much.
0: Tom, you founded DroneUp in, in 2016 and in world. that seems like forever ago, back to the when the Jetsons were starting to come out with Hanna-Barbera television. And you became, and then not only that, so then four years later, you say, okay. You get a contract with Walmart. You begin operations with Walmart in 2020, delivering COVID tests. After four years as a company, what led to that breakthrough moment with Walmart? It seems like this incredible accelerated pace.
1: Yeah, it's actually a very interesting story because we were a drone services provider. Our focus was on utilizing drones for aerial data collection, inspection—the things that we, I think, have always really understood drones could could do efficiently, effectively, and more safely than than other types of inspections. Uh, after the pandemic. Uh, began, several people started asking, all the way up to and including the White House, reached out to several drone companies like us and said, how could drones be used, commercial drones and their operators be used to aid the pandemic relief? And then they added these specifically with regards to delivery, which at the time we didn't do. In fact, we'd never done a single delivery. Um, our answer was blunt and honest. Uh, we have no idea, but we put together an operation in Lawrenceville, Virginia titled Operation Last Mile, and right in the heat of the pandemic brought 40 of our very best operators that were in our drone service network. And we said, let's test drone delivery. Let's do everything we can test. Test how we would do it. How would we communicate? How would we build delivery mechanisms? Because they really didn't exist. And how would we coordinate it? Uh, We published a document called uh, Operation Last Mile. And uh, Walmart saw it. Uh, They were interested in drone delivery, obviously. They didn't have an internal drone delivery program. And they asked us if we'd like to participate in contactless, free drone delivery of COVID test kits. We did for a nine-week period. The operation was incredibly successful. And within a couple of days of completing that exercise, we were talking to Walmart about an investment.
0: Wow. The Pandemic Act is as an accelerator for your company. It changed the direction of where you were going.
1: Not only on the delivery side, not only, you know, people say, did you pivot? We didn't because we still do both, right? We're still an aerial data collection company and we're a delivery company, but not only did it create the impetus for us to get into delivery, but our drone services portion of our business grew 1,004% in the first year of the pandemic because people couldn't travel to go do the inspections. They couldn't get out and do what they would normally do. And so... Even businesses that had been reluctant to look at drones as a potential solution were forced to. And our biggest concern, as you can imagine, was, okay, as the pandemic begins to subside, will they continue to utilize drones in this way or is this a stopgap? But the good news is we've continued. And to this day, uh, Q1 of this year was up 300% over Q1 of last year. So we're still seeing that growth in the drone services side.
0: For the drone services side of those clients, insurance companies, large infrastructure developers, if they're going to develop a building or a bridge, is that who's using that?
1: It's all over the map, but our biggest uh, growth uh, verticals in the drone service side is cell tower inspections. That's a big, significant growth area for us, especially with the, you know, the continued rollout of 5G and the necessity But real estate investment firms, firms that own large amounts of property that need them inspected, we do a lot of various different infrastructure work. And yes, insurance work, we do roof inspections following storms and and various other kind of uh, a new thing we're even doing now is inspecting to ensure that uh, homes are compliant with regards to the fencing around their pools.
0: That's really smart. That's something I would never think about. Oh, I'm gonna i I'm gonna close the gates to my backyard and you're not gonna look and you say, Oh, that's so fast. We we've got a drone and we're authorized to go. Look at this. The cell phone towers, you look at Castle and all the different REITs that American Tower, for example, own it. Are they looking at it from an economics standpoint where if they operate your drone service, it's much more cost efficient than the traditional way of inspecting these towers?
1: Well, it's getting there. See, that's an interesting question because A lot of people have wondered why there's been such a slow growth. It's clearly less expensive to put a drone in the air, do a 30-minute flight of a tower, gather all the data. It's certainly safer because you don't have people scaling the towers and hanging off the side of the towers. But just like in the insurance industry, one of the reasons that the adoption rate was slower than I think some had anticipated was because it wasn't necessarily that they were opposed to it. But there was no way to process the data in the way that we were collecting it. So you'd have a guy who typically would crawl up a tower. He would take a few pictures. He would annotate the data that he needed to provide back. That went to internal people who had a process for ingesting and processing that data. All of a sudden, we're giving them 2,000 high-resolution photos. And they're looking at it saying, this is really cool. But you know, how do we process this? So it's taken some time, not just for us to improve our flight methodologies in the way that we collect the data, but also work with our partners to create software programs that actually deliver usable data to the customers. And and now you're really starting to see that. That's why I think you're starting to see, uh, I don't think, you are seeing a hyperbolic growth in the utilization of drones in those verticals.
0: When you look at different verticals, so we, we have the cell phone towers on one vertical, different vertical, but, but similar wind farms. Are you creating software packages that say, okay, this works for a wind farm because they need the data like this, and for the cell phone tower and street, they need it in a certain standard way?
1: That's exactly right. And and not just the, you know, there's two parts of it. There's the flight portion of it. How do we collect that data safely? How do you fly? A cell tower, you know, fortunately doesn't move much, uh, yeah. so it's pretty easy to have a standard. You know, When you're dealing with a wind farm, and same with solar, right? Solar panels don't move, so we've got a flight. Uh, when you're dealing with things that move it creates different objectives the winds are are a concern when you're flying uh, wind farms because guess what they're put in places where there are wind so you've got a drone flying in a high wind solution with large movable objects the challenge here is that the software packages haven't become consistent so you don't really have one that's good for towers and solar and wind farms so they're continually evolving. I'd say the wind farm software is the one that's probably the least mature of all of them, but it's coming along.
0: So you have the drone on one side, let's call it the hardware. Then you have the software that you're going to deliver the deliverable to your client. And then on the other side, you have the pilot. Are the pilots trained? So you have a pilot to fly for Walmart, a pilot to fly for cell phone towers, a pilot to fly for the for the or the windy environments or is it just a general training course that your pilots go through?
1: No, not at all. So we have the only fully committed training facility at Richard Bland College here in Virginia. And so, for example, at that school, before you can go out and fly at Walmart and you got to remember, we'll come back and talk about flying. I mean, everything we're doing today is autonomous. And, and, and I don't mean waypoint designated. I mean, truly Using environmental conditions to create uh, autonomous routes. So but it, but in that condition, you have to remember you still have to be able to take over and fly manually and operate those sticks. So part of the challenge is we train the, the, the pilots and we send them out in the field, and I'll talk about the training program in a moment. and then they spend 99% of their time just monitoring a screen and the autonomous operations of the drones. And so it can, the, the, the challenge is how do you prevent them from getting uh, rusty on that manual operation when they have to, right? And so, but backing up, our training program, it's a week of online training before they even go to the academy. Then they go to the academy, they live there uh, for a week. And we, we have dormitories, we have dining facilities, uh, we have cell towers on the ground, we have bridges on the ground, but we also have... Uh, a beeve loss corridor there so we can practice you know doing deliveries in a beyond visual line of sight environment and they live there they train during the day they train at night and all that two weeks of training gives them the permission to do is show up to one of our delivery hub locations and at that point they have to go through a rigorous uh weeks of getting signed off in every single area it is a it is a highly uh regulated and controlled training environment that we have and we developed it because we realize that the magnitude of the responsibility we have when we're in 34 different locations doing deliveries into neighborhoods every day, we, we, we drive a, safety, a culture of safety and a culture of training and a culture of accountability every single day from the day they step up to the academy till the day they're in the field.
0: It sounds a lot like the military. Is that where you got the inspiration for this to develop a, a no-nonsense, buy-the-book, do-it-right, do-it-right-all-the-time attitude?
1: Absolutely. And the other thing I, we've really focused on is trying to be the smallest big company that you can be. Um, I talk a lot about people say, what, what's the biggest influence the military had? I don't know that there's one or two or three even, but I'll tell you the top ones. The first thing that we have in our company is a, 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 a people first mentality. If we don't have people that, that take responsibility, take accountability, then it doesn't really matter, right? The second thing is, is we try to maintain that small team culture. No matter how big we get, how do we continue to operate like a small... I came from the special operations community. Uh, I was in the submarine community. These were all small teams that had to be able to operate, get along, and work together. But the third thing is, as I tell our, 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 our every single employee that joins with us, that we're leaders in the industry. And when you acknowledge leadership, that's not... That's not being arrogant or cocky. That's accepting the responsibility that you have. And that is a responsibility to hold others accountable, be willing to be held accountable, and put safety first and safety over revenues every single day. And and I think those are the kind of the key things that I took from the military.
0: Safety over revenue, that's something more companies in emerging technology space should follow. They, they Some companies, not yours, take shortcuts and they put revenue over safety. You're doing the right thing. You're putting... Safety over revenue, you have a leadership people first culture. Is this one of the key ingredients that resonate with Walmart? Not only did you have the tech that worked, but you had the culture that would mesh to ensure that the Walmart brand wouldn't be damaged. It's such a very important brand.
1: I think what really meshed with us in Walmart was first, yes, that we have this culture of safety that I don't think they had typically seen in some of the other different uh, operations. But I would also say we had a very similar core set of fundamentals before we ever even started working with Walmart. And that is the customer experience first. And how do we use drones to make their lives, the people's lives better. And, and, and it's interesting because when you listen to Walmart, it's, you know, uh, saving money, making, you know, people live better. Uh, and so I think they like that. I think they also appreciate our humble approach you know one of the things that that the CEO of Walmart heard me say to the team during a briefing one day is 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 don't ever tell anybody how we're better tell them how we're different and let them decide if it's better so you'll never see in any of our materials we're the best of this we're the best of that we never say that we always simply say we tend to do things differently and then you tell us if you think it's better
0: it's beautiful. It's, it's it's a humble, it's a humble culture. Walmart's culture from all the, the public documents I could read. It's a very uh, humble culture. And, and a lot of the employees and executives that when they travel, they have to share a room and a hotel. And this kind of goes into their, their culture. I want to get into the customer experience here because you're operating in select markets in Texas, Arizona, and Florida with Walmart. I'm a customer, Walmart plus customer. And let's say I order an item and I don't know, let's say shampoo. Oh, I ran out of shampoo. Okay, let me order the shampoo and I have the different delivery options. When I'm on walmart.com, do I have a deliver by drone button and I hit and 30 minutes later, there's the shampoo at my house or how does it work from a customer experience perspective?
1: Yeah, it's coming in the Walmart app. Well, first off, we're also in Utah, Arizona and Virginia. So we're operating in six states in 34 different locations. So uh, Florida, uh, Texas, Utah, Arizona, Virginia and Arkansas. And interestingly enough, we rolled all of those out right at the very end of the year. So our big joke internally is we had to get 34 open by the end of the year. We opened the last one on December 30th. So we had all the time in the world left over. (laughs) But so right now, Walmart is integrating this into the actual Walmart e-commerce experience. It's taken a little time to kind of figure out how it was going to work, considering we'd be in some locations, but not in others. Unlike other delivery models, there's you know, environmental conditions change, certain things. And then there's the regulatory determining what can actually be flown by drone versus, you know, in a vehicle. So it's taken a little bit of time. In the meantime, we have a a website called droneupdelivery.com. And you go to droneupdelivery.com, you enter your address, and then it will tell you if you're in range of delivery and if delivery is available. And if it is, then you go into uh, the app in a, in a neighborhood market, we've got between eight and 10,000 items in inventory. In a superstore or regular Walmart, we've got about twenty to 25,000 items so far in inventory. And it's literally this simple. You go in, you place the order, or you select what you want, you place the order. And once you hit order, the product is retrieved from the store. It's packaged. Uh, it's loaded onto the drone. Once it's approved to launch, you get a text that says your, your uh, product is on the way please stay indoors and uh, then the product is delivered to the home and all of that process uh, takes an average of about 20 to 22 minutes.
0: Now, I want to get into to some interesting data. Walmart's released data around the items that their their customers use. One of them stood out to me more than anything, Hamburger Helper. For some reason, Hamburger Helper is one of the most popular items ordered from Walmart using DroneUp. I'm saying, okay, I'm thinking around dinner time. Just okay, hamburger helper need to make something the kids are hungry. Let's order hamburger helper. It'll be here in twenty two minutes. Is that mostly being ordered at dinner time? And if so, does that create an air traffic control issue since there's so much demand for a dinner time item?
1: And we haven't reached a point where that's been a problem yet. We have excess delivery capacity at every one of the locations, but we just increased the inventory. So prior to a few weeks ago, we only had a few hundred items. And so, you know, there was a lot of uh, people wanting to order, wanting to try the service out. I think Hamburger Helper at the time was just one of those convenient items to order. And, and there was no specific time, interestingly enough. The only thing that we tend to see a trend around specific times is, uh, is, is children's items, baby items. You tend to see those a little bit later in the day because it's, you know, in the evening when they don't want to leave, but still not at a volume. You know, we have the capacity right now to deliver a little over 500 packages a day. And so we haven't yet achieved that volume. But as we're adding more products, I will tell you, I just got a report that since we've increased that inventory, the volume of deliveries has gone up over 300% a day. So we know the demand is there. Uh, and uh, and, and I, I hope we reach the point where we're having that I don't think it'll be an air traffic problem as much as it'll be the loading of the p- product at a volume that we need to be able to do that. Remember, the drone flight itself in, these, in that 22 minutes is between four and six minutes. It's very, very fast. So, you know, and we haven't talked about it, but the flight out, the delivery of the product and the flight back, that part's four to six minutes. So that type of rotation is pretty quick. Right now, the longest leg and the longest... Uh, pole in the tent is actually the retrieval of the uh, product from the store.
0: What happens when the drone gets to the customer's house? Does it it drop the package and and the customer gets an alert? Okay, safe to go outside? How does that process work?
1: So once we get the order, let me just back up and tell you what happens. The order comes in. As soon as the order comes in, before we even have the product out of the store, the system is autonomously calculating the route for delivery of the product. And it's taking into account traffic patterns. It's taking into account that it wants to fly over roofs. It's analyzing different signals to determine where there may or may not be crowds of people. And so it's creating a very safe route that also takes into account environmental conditions. We certainly would rather have the wind behind us when we're carrying the package and then return into a headwind, for example, those type of things. That all happens in a matter of seconds. Once the product comes out, uh, somebody inspects it to make sure it's a compliant product, closes the box, loads it on the drone, remote pilot command makes a final judgment call. He pushes a button. The drone takes off and on its own goes to about 200 feet and then flies its autonomous route to the home. Once it gets to the home, it will lower down using sensors to determine the best delivery position uh, usually on the back porch. The remote pilot piloting command will then do an inspection of the area, verify it's clear in addition to some other sensors that do that as well. He'll hit the button. It lowers down to 80 feet. It then lowers via a tether, and it gently sets the package on the ground. The tether comes back up, and then the drone returns to altitude and flies back. So it's a very uh, seamless product. Like I said, the the the, the operator only intervenes twice: once to approve takeoff, and once to approve delivery. And then it uses the same autonomous system to determine its route back. And so our system can operate dozens of drones in the same ecosystem with a single operator if, if, you know, once the regulations allow us to do so.
0: It's scalable and today you're, you're flying beyond visual line of sight. Does the operator have to, to do, do anything or does that come down to the regulatory environment where you're currently operating under the FAA Small Unmanned Aircraft Regulations Part 107? Is there any nuances or processes that have to be done today since you're flying beyond line of sight?
1: Right. Well, we're not really flying beyond line of sight. We're, we're, we're flying what I think is sometimes referred to as extended visual line of sight. So we have a visual observer out in the field. That visual observer's job is in the event the, that the remote pilot in command loses visual on the drone. The operator that's out in the field, it doesn't have to be where the delivery is going specifically, just out in the field he maintains a visual on the drone and the airspace around the drone, that person has the capability to take over control if they need to. One of the things that we think is important in terms of considering beyond visual line of sight regulations is we've never, ever had to take control. So the concern sometimes about beyond visual line of sight is, well, what happens if the RPIC can't see it and there's a problem? But if you look at data, and I'm a big data guy, data has demonstrated that we're never having to do that, right? So and we share that information. But so right now we're flying, you know, about two miles. But there is a there is somebody that has visual uh, on the drone. But more specifically, they have they have a visual on the airspace around the drone, and they have both communications, well protocoled communications with the hub. But they also have the ability, in the event of an emergency, to take control of the drone.
0: This all ties into your culture of safety, drone up, I'll just say this very frankly: you're doing it right. You're not cutting corners. You're doing it right. Is that helping to build trust with those customers that are delivering that package? Now, okay, this is to be delivered in a, in a safe manner.
1: Yeah. So one of the other things we say is that over the last year, we've had three missions and, and sometimes people laugh and, and they say these 34 operations and you're only able to fly about two miles. And sometimes people laugh and go, how, you know, how significant is that? Well, you know, Two miles, there's a lot of homes within two miles of Walmarts, right? 90% yes. of the U.S. population lives within 10. There's a lot within two. But there's a lot of things we needed to prove before we could go further than two. And one of them is we needed to prove we could work with the FAA. We could coordinate, develop a relationship, tell them what we're doing, because we view the FAA as partners, where you know a lot of people in our industry really just feel like the FAA are the bad guys. What we recognized very, very early, all the way back to twenty nineteen, was this is as much a challenge for them as it is for us. They 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 have responsibility for the airspace and, and the national airspace system. And now all of a sudden, you've got these operators coming in with drone. And, and let's let's be honest and candid here. You don't even have to fly a drone to get a Part one hundred seven certificate that makes you a legal commercial operator. So I have always been respectful of the FAA's position. So mission number one was to demonstrate to them that we could put hundreds of thousands of flights in the air, come out. I mean, we've had over a dozen FAA visits to our hubs. They've all gone well. We invite them. We, we Actually, every time we open up in an area, we invite the FAA to come out. So mission number one was to prove that we could build that relationship with the FAA. Mission number two, which was interesting, was to t- prove that we could scale. Nobody had ever built a drone operation that has 350, 400 operators doing deliveries every single day in multiple states. Could we even do that? And that's where the training academy became important, building supply chains for products that don't exist, right? I mean, we're sitting there saying, we need this type of battery and we need thousands of them, and there's nobody out there. So we had to prove that we could scale. But the third thing we had to prove, and it's one of my favorite, I'll tell you a story about it, but one of my favorite things is we had to prove that communities wouldn't come out with pitchforks and try to burn down our facilities and the Walmart facilities for putting drugs. Would communities actually embrace it? So what we've done is a couple of things. The first thing that we do is we have a a process called cone talks, where we invite the public to come out, visit the hub, walk around, touch the drone, answer questions, ask questions, we answer questions. Uh, We do uh, free delivery demos to the city council, to the chambers, to anybody that wants to see it. We do that in every community that we go in. And so even when you have people that sometimes are a little concerned, and I get it, this is this things flying over my neighborhood. Are you safe? Do you know what you're doing? Are you spying on me? We address all those concerns. I'll tell you a quick funny story back from North Las Vegas. When we were doing COVID test kit delivery, you had a choice, you could come to the Walmart, drive through the parking lot and get a free COVID test kit, or you could have it delivered by drone. And so we had all of these people who were like, I am not getting in my car, not in the middle of COVID, I am not driving to Walmart to get a COVID test. We would then deliver them the COVID test kit by drone and they would drive to the Walmart to tell us how cool the delivery was. (laughs) And we kind of realized at that moment that, Walmart had made a really brilliant move in using COVID test kit delivery as a test because people needed these kits and they did not want to get in their cars. And it gave us a chance to demonstrate that we weren't just a bunch of cowboys out flying drones, that we had a professional operation. And granted, at that time, it wasn't nearly what it is today, but, uh, and we've, but we've come a long way.
0: But you achieved the most important aspect. You built public trust. And when they showed up at Walmart and how excited they were, mission accomplished. They're now a convert. Oh, yes, I can get everything <laughs> delivered via the drone. And that also helps. You have the partnership and the, and the deep respect for the FAA. That helps the FAA with their job as the public starts to accept this technology as they regulate and manage the airspace. And from a regulation standpoint, are there any new regulations for or drones that are currently in the works? Is Congress talking about anything? Is the FAA currently debating anything?
1: Yeah, there's a whole lot of things going on. I mean, first off, you know, we just completed recently the Beyond Visual Line of Sight ARC, which was the, you know, Aviation Rulemaking Committee. And we, the industry, sat down with the FAA and each other and said, what could the rules look like that would help us achieve Beyond Visual Line of Sight operation more quickly? What? How do we get more reasonable? That was done and submitted uh, to the FAA. Um, in addition to that, we, we were very... uh involved in a recent piece of legislation submitted by senator warner and senator thune bipartisan legislation that essentially says if you read it it's time that we start taking a more risk-based approach to drone operations you know if you're looking at the, the 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 certification process right now and if we're having to go through a part 135 and all of that these drones that weigh less than 55 pounds, and I want to be clear, people forget this. It's 55 pounds total with payload. So it's not like 55 plus the weight, it's 55. So it, these drones are tip, like us, we got a 15 pound capacity. So the drones, you know, you know, 35 pounds or you know, 38 pounds. But the point is, is when you go through that certification and you start doing your waiver, one of the first things you have to waive is the seatbelt requirement. And then another thing you have to waive is the requirement to have the manuals on in multiple languages. It's never really made sense. And so then you go back and you look and you say, well, how many serious injuries have there been by drones in the last five years alone? And of all of the serious injuries that you'll find, they were all to operators, the operators who were doing something silly, not to the general public. So our kind of pitch to Congress and to the Senate was, how safe do we have? What's the safety threshold? You know, if you you'll never achieve 100% safety. I mean, you, you can't go for a walk and be 100% safe. So, what we like about the new kind of uh, approach, both from Senator Warner and Senator Thune's bill, from the rulemaking committee, the Beevloss Arc, from from what the legislation that's going into the FA reauthorization bill is really more about a, a risk based approach under small sub 55. Look, demonstrate that you've got a safety plan and that you meet a minimum safety standard. Quit making everything rule by exception. And so, I, this is the first time I used to tell people the problem with our industry and why so many good companies aren't around anymore is we were having to guess where the regulatory puck was going to be, right? Because there was there was there really was no roadmap for what we were doing. So you were kind of like the technology radius for where the puck's going to be is this big the 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 you know where the regulations puck is is going to be this big and that's very hard to do for startups right it's very difficult when you don't know where you need to be 2 years from now it's hard for any company but it's especially hard for low funded startups now what i can say with regards to the regulation and the movement we're seeing in the house and the senate this is the first time that i feel like the FAA the department of transportation Congress and the industry are all aligned on a set of regulatory uh, standards that make sense. And I think the regulatory puck radius has now gotten really, really small. And I think that's going to be big for our industry and big for a lot of companies and good for the public.
0: It's good for the public, but more importantly, it's good for the U.S. economy. Companies like yours, you're going to create jobs. As Senator Scott says, jobs, jobs, jobs. The drone industry is going to create jobs. The bill that you mentioned with Senator Warner and Senator Thune was that the Increasing Competitiveness for American Drones Act of twenty twenty three is that the legislation that you were mentioning?
1: That's the correct, yeah, that's the one. And what's interesting on that, I've heard some opinions where one of the things that Senator Warner commented on was that it would help increase U.S. manufacturing capabilities and opportunities. And I've heard a lot of people say, no, it doesn't do anything for that. All it does is expand uh, the opportunity to fly beyond visual line of sight and drive demand for drones. But the problem is you got to have demand (laughs) before you're going to have companies manufacturing large volumes of platforms. And it's just like, you know, it's just like us right now. How many companies can we go out to in the United States and put in an order for a thousand drone uh, delivery capable drone platforms today? Not one. There's not one company that could produce a thousand of those that would meet our standard and operate under our software and under our guidelines. Now, there's some out there, but they... We couldn't just go place an order. We'd have to set a little, it would take us a year to get aligned on that. But once there's more standards it put in place, once we all know both what, what are the typical software integrations, what does the detect and avoid standards look like, what do all of these things actually, how do they all tie together, then you're going to see U.S. companies start to manufacture at scale. So I do believe that the bill not only will drive the opportunity to provide the public a better service through delivery, but I think it will drive U.S. innovation, and I think it will drive uh, an increase uh, manufacturing of, of some highly capable platforms in the United States.
0: And, and manufacturing jobs are good, high-paying jobs. I could when. Um... It was then Mayor Gominez, now Congressman Gomez of, of Miami-Dade. That's what he was trying to do. That was one of his agendas to turn it off. Manufacturing jobs in South Florida, we need to diversify our economy, we need manufacturing jobs. This bill is a potential opportunity to, to manufacture those drones in South Florida.
1: This is funny. I don't want to name drop, but I actually had a dinner with with with, with him in Florida about uh, three or four months ago and we were trying to get his support because we're big in Florida, and He turned around to me and he said, how many manufacturing jobs do you have drone up right now? And I said, well, we don't really have manufacturing jobs. He said, let me rephrase the question. He said, if you continue to grow, how many manufacturing jobs are you going to create? And I said, thousands. And he said, "Okay, I'm in. Now, when you said that, I kind of recalled that conversation that he he was pushing that.
0: There you go. And, and, and he's a sitting U.S. congressman now in a very populous and a growing county that wants those manufacturing jobs. So you're going to create the manufacturing jobs, but then you have the national security issue that Congress is, is currently debating around the, the technology. We see certain drone manufacturers are banned from working with the armed forces. They're, they're banned on certain governmental properties. You could also make the argument this increases national security. Is that also winning over votes in Congress?
1: It's one of the very first things that we highlight. The drone platforms that we use for delivery here in the United States are manufactured in the United States, just up the road in Maryland. All of the components are either manufactured by uh, friendly countries or in the United States. Um, the software is all uh, mostly our software, with the exception of some partners like Arterian, l and others that they're, you know, they're, they're, they're friendly country uh, software. Uh, it, it has a huge impact and I believe is also important to our partners and our customers.
0: So you have, it's very important, and I think it's an, it's important for the U.S. economy. So you, ha- you have the friendly countries, the national security mindset. Is that what's allowed you to expand into the maritime sector, since that is a very important security element that you cannot put spying operations just due to what's going through there?
1: You know, we have access to a lot of platforms. And the platforms we use for delivery and the platforms we use for inspection, uh, the platforms we use for first responder and public safety, those are all a little bit different. Uh, I would maybe not a little bit, maybe a lot different, but you know, what happens with us is when we meet with one of these partners, a maritime partner, uh, or port specifically ports, we'll say, what are your requirements for the platforms that we use? And we get them from them. And then we move past that. What is it now we want to do? How are we going to collect this data? You know, is this, is this supposed to be, uh, a visible, uh, uh, security type of project or is this supposed to be more covert? There's a lot of questions that are asked, but fortunately, it's not the American-made component of us that gets us into those because we're going to use whatever they define. But to your point, it's almost always American-made components, right?
0: When you sit down, let's just let's just call it for uh, for political uh, neutrality purposes, an um, Acme port. When they when Acme port approaches you and says, "Hey Tom, we'd like to do X, Y, and Z," do you sit down and you map out all the operations with them? Is that how you? You deploy in the ports, or do you kind of go in there with that this is our maritime slash port solution?
1: No, we never do that. And 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 the reason is is we we know that we will never understand their business more than they understand their business for one. Two, they've already been doing security. So how do we augment that security? Usually the question rather than saying here's how we're going to help you, is we're gonna say what are the areas you would like better visibility in. What are the areas you struggle with? And then what platform might we bring? Is it just visual? Is it, just visual? Uh, is it, uh, is it uh, thermal? Is it you know some type of hyperspectral? Is it putting gas or nuclear detection devices? I mean, what, what exactly do you need? And then we put together an operational plan and proposal that kind of fills the gaps that they, they need to fill.
0: You're building a bespoke product that they're actually going to use. You're not saying here it is. You're listening to them and building up a bespoke product that they're going to use. That's a game changer.
1: It's you know it is, but I would argue that it's a bespoke product for the first one or two, because at the end of the day, all ports have the same issue, mostly the same issue, depending on whether a military port, maritime port, or you know commercial. It doesn't matter. But the point is, is we don't know what those gaps are. So by having the first one or two tell us now you know the 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 follow-on to your your question would be uh six months or a year from now i do hope we're going in with solutions that we can just sit down and hand them but again we're as, as great as this industry is and as mature as it's starting to feel we're still very very new it's still very that's why when you made the comment 2016 is an eternity in our industry we, we still got a lot to learn. So I think the better thing for for folks in our industry, ours, us, other companies, is to go in with a humble, tell us what you need, and let us figure out how to help.
0: Well, it's a very new industry. You're, you're racking up wins on the board. You're racking up experience. I like the different, you have the delivery with Walmart, you have the commercial operations and Maritime, you have it with cell phone towers. And putting this all together, let's put it in a blender, for a matter of fact, in your opinion, what is the future of commercial drone operations?
1: Well, I think it's going to change significantly and 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 it's one of the things that you're going to see is the less reliance on the operator. As we can fly beyond visual line of sight, we're going to be able to have the ability to deploy drones from fixed locations. It's part of our strategy, part of our model is where we have delivery hubs. Where we have delivery hubs, we will also have pre-positioned drones ready to deploy. We have a partnership with a security company, for example, and right now we're in the process of testing. The security alarm comes in, the drone deploys, it's overhead within 30 seconds, it's live streaming what it's seeing back to the command center, so the command center can make the decision of you know whatever, whatever appropriate level of response may be. Um, in, in that particular scenario, there's no operator. It is autonomous. It's deployed autonomously. It runs itself autonomously. And then if they say on their system, we need a closer view of door A, door B, the drone automatically will go in and give and and do that feed. So I think you're going to see less manual intervention, much more autonomous use, fast fast reaction. And that's why you'll hear the term, and I'm not a big fan of the term, but it's it's become ubiquitous, so I'm just going to have to accept it, is the drone in a box uh, where you literally just have a drone sitting in a secure facility ready to launch within seconds.
0: To me, I look at the security, you could potentially lower homeowner insurance. And I also look at it in a a disaster that's potentially hit with a hurricane. Perhaps you have these pre-staged and the first responders can launch the drones. Is that something that you're looking at, having a secure launch facility part of FEMA or another organization where they could throw the drones up, inspect instead of putting a potential human in harm's way?
1: Well, I mean, that's what we're doing with the security companies. We're also testing this out with fire departments. You know, depending on the statistic that you believe, uh, you know, less than 5% of fire alarms are actually real alarms, but we're deploying these trucks six miles a gallon, we're putting them on aging infrastructure, we're driving over to the other side of town to realize that, you know, there's there's no fire, there's no issue, there's no anything. And so by being able to, for example, in that particular case, deploy a drone immediately, put it over a facility, have smoke sensors, have thermal sensors you can determine right away whether or not this is a false alarm or not. Just look at the savings in terms of fuel, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of impacts to traffic and other people's daily lives, noise of the trucks flying. I mean, there, there's so many things that when you start trying to check off the benefits, it, it just becomes, you know, almost overwhelming.
0: You're saving money. You're saving carbon. It seems that the opportunities for drones and so what you're building a drone up, I'll just use the term Endless. I really can't wait to see we have you back on a year or two from now. Next thing you know, you're in 12 states, you're scaling this, you you uh, helped with this hurricane, helped with that first response. Okay, you're going to keep growing, Tom. And as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, what would you like our listeners take away with them today?
1: I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. I think that hopefully they've heard the message that I I hear the concerns, you know, and and some of the concerns are privacy, and I want to address that. You know, for example, we don't film or record or take any pictures when we're operating. We we don't record any data when we're flying and doing deliveries in neighborhoods. A lot of people are surprised to hear that. Another thing people ask about is the noise, right? Uh, You know, I'm, I'm nervous about the noise of the drones flying over. And we've done a lot of analysis, and actually what we've determined that at our lowest altitude when we're doing delivery... We're actually more quiet than a delivery truck driving down the street. In fact, we have had people order, have the product delivered, didn't realize that we ever delivered the product, called us up and reordered because they, did, they missed the chance to see the drone doing the delivery. So we take those things very seriously. As you look at our next generation of drone, we're actually making it even more quiet. So we're excited about that. But I, I just want to make sure, and I appreciate you recognizing, and I think it's important, especially in the communities that we're operating in, that they recognize just how focused we are on safety. It is it is our livelihood. I have a saying, one of those sayings I picked up in the Navy, and every person that works for me, every person knows it, and that is that one-off shit will wipe out 99 attaboys. So we can do it right 99 times, and we can do it wrong once, and people will forget the 99 times we did it right. So our focus is to not have any off shits.
0: We don't want those because – DroneUp is doing it right. I repeat, DroneUp is doing it right. They're not cutting corners, they're doing it right, and they're gonna be a welcome part of your community in the future. Today is tomorrow, tomorrow is today, the future is DroneUp. Tom, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, Please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week as we speak with WSP's David Kim, who will discuss road uses charging programs and how they benefit drivers, transportation agencies, and businesses nationwide. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.